you can turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. The plan is to linger here for a little bit, considering Jesus' teaching as he's responding to the Pharisees. We're going to be looking at what else Jesus has to say on this topic in the other Gospels, but we'll be launching here out of Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Last week, as we looked at this passage, uh, one of the points that we looked at was the reality that those who love God most interpret God's Word most accurately. Because if you love God, then you come with the submissive attitude towards his word. But there's a way in which when we love idols or other things more than God, we can approach God's word in order to try to find in it what we want to see and what we want to justify for ourselves. And we saw that that is how the Pharisees use the scripture so that they could have continual uh, divorces where they actually viewed themselves as kind, righteous men because they gave a certificate of divorce to uh, their wives so that they could be free. It was a sense where they felt like we're keeping the law and Really, they were twisting Deuteronomy 24, reading into it a command rather than a concession. And we barely had time to uh, discuss uh, verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. It seems like this comes out of uh, nowhere in the context. But what really is going on is Jesus, in the eyes of the Pharisees, is a lawbreaker because he's receiving tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And so the Pharisees feel justified in saying he's not from God. Jesus confirms the law. He says, I'm not a lawbreaker. In fact, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot to pass out of the law. 
And then what does he do? He points out their adultery. While they view themselves as godly, using the scriptures, he exposes their sin. And the topic of divorce is brought up. There are certain topics that when they are preached on, we're going to look at the topic beyond just Luke, but there's certain topics when they are preached on, they require careful balance and must be preached out of a heart of love, but also with courage. Topics like abortion and divorce are two of those topics that must be handled with such care because in a room this size with this many people in it, there are those who have been terribly and painfully affected by one or the other or perhaps both. For those who've been affected, even the word abortion or divorce can strike a chord of fear and guilt. So why not just skip this sermon? Why not just let last week be last week? Why linger with the issue of marriage and divorce? In fact, John the Baptist preached on this and was killed for it. It's a topic that's easy to want to pass over, knowing there's so much hurt and pain. Yet one of the reasons why we ought not do that is because God's word is always good. It's always good to ask, what does God say? even when God's word cuts at first. We must linger because there are some here whose marriages are really struggling. Some know it. Others don't know it. Because denial often assures that a marriage will never progress and ensures that denigration of that marriage will happen maybe for years upon years. Often, one spouse sees this struggle and another doesn't. There's some here today that their marriage are struggling because there's an addiction to pornography by one or both partners. There's other marriages struggling because there's an addiction to alcohol. There's some marriage, marriages here, and probably most, that are struggling because there's a lack of true oneness relational oneness that God would have for his people. There's some here that might be considering an affair, already flirting with the idea 
And there's maybe others that are in the midst of an affair. There's some marriages that might be steeped in bitterness and lack of forgiveness and see no way out and only see divorce as the only option. Some might be in a marriage that is abusive. Some men might be abusing their place of leadership in the home by intimidating their wives rather than loving them in self-sacrificial service. And there's some women who might be usurping their husband's leadership by forgetting that God has called them to help them lead well. There's some young people that might be considering marriage in the near future, but are already dabbling in fornication, sex outside of marriage, sexual acts outside of marriage. There's others that might be parents or grandparents wanting to help their children in a marriage that they can tell is struggling. Others might be little children. You might be five years old. Little children affected by a divorce or little children in a marriage that is filled with tension and fighting. And the children know that scary word, divorce. Almost every parent has had their children ask if they would ever get divorced. So we cannot ignore it. We must go to God's word. Marriage was God's idea. And God knows how it works best. Everyone in this room is affected by marriage and divorce in one way or another. So as we approach this text, let us pray that God would grant us good hearts, submissive hearts, leaning into his word. Father, would you grant us a godly fear? Would you grant us love for you that would motivate the way we lean into your word in regards to marriage? May we all draw near to your throne of grace with confidence, knowing that there is mercy and grace for help in time of need, Father, let us not shy away from you and your word, for your mercy is great. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's no soft way to talk about divorce from the scripture. There's a sense where the task of this sermon cannot be delivered in a soft way. So today we're going to look at 
how does God feel about marriage? How does God feel about the brokenness of divorce and, and, and marriages that are ignoring what he says about them? Because if we love God, we want to know what he thinks. So part of the goal is to feel the fierceness of God's hatred towards marriages that end in divorce or marriages that are heading that way or marriages that fail to ask the question, what do you want out of my marriage? So there's a sense where we look at that and then God's mercy in the face of it, God's grace, that isn't soft either. It's, it's almost offensive how gracious and patient God is towards those who are in these situations or who have experienced a divorce. So we have heavy sledding. We don't have a lot of time. This could easily be three sermons. And it's a topic I want to come back to because as I've thought about this week, it affects all of us. This is where God's word meets our life. Let's do, let's act according to his word. So what is marriage? We probably all have too low a view of marriage. How does God feel about it? What is it? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. We're going to see the first marriage. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Here's what we read. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were unashamed. There's the marriage in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve. And when we look at it, we see that marriage is between a man and a woman. That's what marriage is. God invented it. And it's a covenant that has two parts to that covenant. And it's the covenant before God in both areas. It's a covenant before God. In fact, the scripture tells us that God makes the marriage on that day. God joins them together. Whom God has joined together, let man not separate, Jesus says. So it's a covenant before God. It's not just a promise between two people, although it is a promise between two people before God. And as we look at this verse, there's two basic parts. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. There's a leaving and cleaving. There's a sense where a new family comes onto the scene and the promise is for life. It's like super glue forever. In the Hebrew, it's stuck together forever. So the promise is 
for life. That's what marriage is. That's what happens when a couple gets married. They make a promise to each other that it's for life. And then the second part is the fact that they shall become one flesh. And this speaks of the consummating of that union in the sexual union between man and woman. There's a oneness. God makes them one. And then there's a physical aspect to the oneness where God gives a great gift and, and pleasure to the married couple. And that sexual union, in a sense, is a barometer to the rest of uh, the marriage in regards to relational oneness. God's desire is that a couple will share everything, their emotions with each other, their fears with each other, their goals, their lives. And when a couple comes together in intimacy and there's lack of oneness, you see that lack of oneness in that moment. And so there's a, what consummates a marriage is a promise to stay together forever in a sexual union with that person and no one else. The promise is you and only you. That's what a marriage is. That's what sex means. Sex means remember the covenant. Remember it, you and only you forever. That's why sex outside of marriage doesn't fulfill. It's, it's meant to say, remember the covenant, and there is no covenant. If we're to understand divorce, we need to understand what marriage is and what it means. And so we see in Genesis 2.24, the first marriage, it's a covenant between man and God and a husband and wife. There's a leaving and holding fast to one another, and there's a one flesh union. And marriage ultimately is an illustration of the gospel. That's what we read in Ephesians 5. 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. The ultimate purpose of marriage is to tell the world about Christ's love for sinners. It says something. So why does God hate divorce? Why does God hate divorce? If you want to turn to Malachi chapter 2, we get the most clear statement on this. In Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And God speaking through the prophet is explaining 
to them why God is not accepting their worship. Here's what he says in verse 13. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Why doesn't he accept this offering? Because the Lord has, was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. He's saying, the reason why I don't accept your worship is I look at your marriages. And I see you men being unfaithful to your wives and you made a covenant before me. And then he says in verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? There's this uh, spiritual aspect where God makes them one. It's not merely a party where two people say we're going to live together now, but God is doing something. Did he not make them one with the portion of the spirit in their union and what God was seeking was godly offspring? So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So, that, so guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now there's a difficult translation in verse 16 in the uh, Hebrew. Here's how the NASB reads in verse 16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers himself covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So here's what we learn about how God feels about divorce. When God looks at the breaking of a marriage because of unfaithfulness, what he sees, and in this instance it's the husband, he sees the husband with the murder weapon in his hand and violence all over his garments. Blood. Now what's been murdered? What's been murdered is what God has done. What's been destroyed is a creation that God had brought together. See, if we come to God's word and we say, God, help us know how you feel about marriage and how you feel about divorce, one of the illustrations, one of the images the Bible paints for us is a murderer with a murder weapon and blood on their garments, which helps us understand God's fierce anger towards divorce, his hatred of it. He hates it because it breaks a covenant before him. We saw that in Malachi there. Though she is your companion and wife by covenant in verse 14. 
Did he not make them one with the portion of the Spirit in their union? Wayne Mack, a biblical counselor, he wrote this book called Strengthening Your Marriage, which I'd recommend to anyone. The thing I love about biblical counselors is they don't just say the right thing about marriage. They say, if God's Word says it, what does it look like? How does it play out? If you agree with the sermon, then what does it look like? Husbands? with your wives, taking, taking your marriage seriously. So if you want to take God's word seriously on marriage, this is a wonderful uh, book. But Wayne Mack says in there, he said, marriage is not a matter of blind chance, but deliberate choice. It's not a matter of convenience, but obedience. It's not a matter of how the cards may fall, but how much you're willing and determined to work at it. A good marriage is based more on commitment than feeling and animal attraction. What he's saying there is a marriage is cut by a promise, not a feeling. And there's a covenant that is there. In fact, in Proverbs 2.16, we read, So you'll be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. See, that's why the adulteress has committed such a great sin. When David committed sin with Bathsheba, what does he say? Before you and you alone have I sinned. Now, did he sin against Bathsheba and her family and Uriah? Yes, but in comparison, he's broken a covenant with God. The fear of God is what Proverbs 2 points out as the most devastating aspect of of, uh, unfaithfulness. It's an irrevocable promise to each other for good times and bad times. Wayne Mack says it's similar to becoming a Christian. When you become a Christian, you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you no matter what difficulties come. And in Ecclesiastes 5.4, we read, When you vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. But God is the one whom you must fear. There's a sense where we've lost any sense of God's role in marriage, the promise that is made before him. When divorce comes into our mind, as though this might be a good option. The question is, is do I know how God feels about divorce? He hates divorce, not only because it breaks a covenant before him, but it destroys his creation that is meant to display the gospel. Matthew 19, uh, 6 says this, What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus' reason for why divorce is so horrible is because God has joined it together. It's on par with abortion. 
when man goes into the womb of a woman, where God does his most delicate work, where God forms together an image bearer, bearer meant to display his glory. When man goes inside and takes the life of that child, the creation of God is destroyed. God is joining together two people. And his creation is being torn apart in divorce. Third reason why he hates it is it proliferates sin and adultery. Usually, often doesn't make things better. It proliferates adultery. How, how does God feel about adultery? Let's just look at some Old Testament passages. Leviticus 20 verse 10. If a man commits adultery with his wife or with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So God's law, God's judgment on adultery is death for adultery, the two people involved in it. If you want to know how serious adultery is, death is the punishment. If you want, that's what God's law says. It helps give a weightiness to the action. And, it, and one way to look at it is in Leviticus 19.20, it's talking about fornication, the sin of fornication. If a man lies carnally with a woman who is a slave acquired for another man, but who has, has in no way been redeemed nor given freedom, there shall be punishment, but they shall not, however, be put to death because she is, was not free. There's a sense where the punishment isn't as severe when fornication's there, even though God hates that, that lies about how he's created uh, our sexuality as well. But to the breaking of a marriage, the law required death. It's reiterated in Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with his, the wife of another man, both of them shall die the man who lays with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge evil from Israel. You even think of the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is what? You shall not commit adultery. God hates unfaithfulness. You shall not commit adultery. And not only that, not only is one of the Ten Commandments that but just a few verses later, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. In which the law says your thoughts about adultery are I hate. So much so that when I give you a law in the Ten Commandments, two of them are on that and then you get to the end of Exodus 20. A person almost never pauses and, and notices this. The last verse 
in Exodus 20 says, you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So the way people would worship pagan gods is they would have these steps at these high places where they would go up and worship. And as God's giving his law through Moses, he's saying, when you make my altar, make it flat. Because what happens when those pagan gods are being worshipped, people are looking under the garment. Which tells us how God thinks about immodesty. How serious does God take our sexuality, our marriages? What we reveal in our clothing is clearly seen in the scripture. If we come to it with honest hearts and we come to God wanting to know, how do you feel about it? And you know that Christ picks up this topic in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 27. Jesus says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. For if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. It is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, anyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus comes and he says, a person is an adulterer of the heart if you've coveted someone else's spouse, or if you had lustful intent for another woman. And what's deserved punishment for that is hell. And when he's talking about plucking out your right eye and cutting off your right arm, what he's saying is, you will go to hell if you don't fight the lustful intentions of your heart. If your faith in Christ doesn't rise to the level where you want to kill the sin that's inside, it's evidence that you've never had the spirit in you because the spirit is at war with the flesh which means if you're addicted to pornography and you've become callous to it and you just said this is no big deal our culture everybody's doing this everyone if you're in fornication sex outside of marriage if your mind is wandering and you've just played easy with your lustful thoughts the scripture would have you know what God thinks about it and would call you to repentance, would call you to war. You can be set free from a pornography addiction, but you cannot be set free playing easy with that addiction. It'll be a war. It'll be like plucking out an eye and cutting off an arm. But this is what God's word 
says in these regards. And in fact, in Hebrews 13, 4, it says, Let the marriage bed be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and, ad- and adulterous. There's a warning in it. Husbands and wives, do you know the joy of a marriage bed that doesn't bring unrepented guilt into it, defiledness into it? To have a clear conscience, fighting your known sin, to fight for the honor of your marriage bed is worth it. One of the greatest gifts God has given you if you're married, and yet we treat it like it's nothing. We let our minds go places unchecked. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, here's here's what we read. For this is the will of God. Whenever you hear that, get out a notepaper. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this manner. Why? Because the Lord Yahweh is the avenger in all these things. See what Paul's saying? Don't wrong your brother or sister in Christ by your sexual immorality. For Yahweh is the avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity But holiness, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives the Holy Spirit to you. So there's a sense where we all must tremble in our marriages. Since all of us have remaining fallen nature inside us, which means every marriage has a battle. If you floated in here thinking my marriage is good, you're one of the ones that's deceived. There hasn't been a good marriage since Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, instantly death came into the marriage. What does Adam say? The woman whom you gave me, or the woman who you gave me, she's the one that gave me the fruit. Jesus just, or God just said in the passage before that whoever eats of the tree shall surely die. He's saying, kill my wife. Instantly broken marriage. Now in Christ, with the spirit inside us, our marriages can become more fruitful, can show more of the gospel of Christ. But none of us ought to be neutral are coasting. We live in a culture that tells us how you think in your mind when it comes to uh, sexuality. It's all against us. And so, 
Let's hear the scripture. Let's see what it says. And God hates divorce so much so that divorce is never commanded, but merely permitted. And this is the case of what we see in Luke, in our passage in Luke. But I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 24. Because this is the passage that the Pharisees were twisting. The Pharisees went to Deuteronomy 24 in order to argue for they're doing a good thing when they divorce their wives. Here's what it says. When a man strike, or when a man takes his wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, some indecency in her. So the Pharisees take the word indecency and one of their teachers named Hillel <laughs> writes a book about all the indecencies that you can divorce a wife for. Easy divorce. In that list is offending the mother-in-law. If you offend the mother-in-law, it's indecent. You can give her a certificate of divorce. In fact, they say God commands us to. See, they're making themselves these honorable people if, if they burn, if the wives burn the food, it falls under indecency, according to the Pharisees' writings. If you find another woman more attractive than your wife, then your wife becomes unclean and indecent to that man's thinking. This is how they've come to the Word of God and twisted it, and Jesus is exposing it. So they're looking at 24 as, see, we're good. But what does it actually say? Because it says, uh, when a man takes his wife and marries her, if then he, she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of his house, you would expect it to say here that, you know, then everyone's clear. But that's not what the text says. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, the, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter one dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. See, this is one of these case laws. This is where, so a man has a wife, he finds some indecency in her, gives her a certificate of divorce, she goes marries a guy. Let's say that husband dies, she wants to come back and marry her original husband, and God says, no, that's adultery. That's wrong, she's been defiled. So rather than Deuteronomy 24 saying this is a good thing, this easy divorce for any reason, it's actually warning about continuing on the adultery that was happening in Israel. This, this was God pointing out to them how they perpetuate their sin when they do this. But a person 
should ask, what does Matthew 19.3 mean then? 3 through 10, where the Pharisees come up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Then they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? See, they're talking about Deuteronomy 24. They're saying, why did he command us to get a divorce then? Aren't you ignoring the scripture, Jesus? He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the the beginning, it was not so. Deuteronomy 24 is a concession to the hardness of their heart. Not that God thinks divorce is a good thing. Especially easy divorce. So someone might say, if the law is given that someone who commits adultery should be put to death, how come Deuteronomy 24 is there? How come Jesus says, Moses gave you this because of the hardness of your heart? Here's the answer. Because of the mercy of God. The case laws in the Old Testament were like maximum punishments. In fact, in the law, it says if a children dishonors his father or mother, they can be stoned in front of the people, put to death. Now, we don't have evidences that children were being stoned to death. That's God's way of saying they can get up to that punishment. This is what he thinks about disobedience to parents. It's the same reason why David wasn't put to death when committed adultery with Bathsheba. Built into the law was also the mercy of God that gave time for an adulterer to repent by God's mercy. But when that mercy was given to the offending party, let's say the wife who didn't commit adultery, adultery was committed on her, if the law was carried out, she'd be freed up to remarry because her husband would be dead. But when God shows mercy to the offending party, he also showed mercy to the offended. And in Deuteronomy 24, in those days, all the evidence was was the men were the ones. Women weren't giving certificates of divorce. The men were. And God, in Deuteronomy 24, and what Jesus is saying because of the hardness of these men's hearts, He allowed a certificate of divorce. But don't think God doesn't hate the fact that that marriage is broken. See, that's the key. Because there's two exception clauses in the New Testament for divorce. One is adultery, unrepentant adultery. And you say, how do you know it's unrepentant adultery and not just one momentary adultery? Here's why. Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, he permitted 
a certificate of divorce. Someone who commits adultery and is repentant and wanting to change, that's not a sign of the hardness of heart. But for unrepentant, hard-hearted adultery, the woman or the man, depending on who the offended or the innocent party is, the innocent party is freed up to remarry. That's what it that's that's what the context means. There was no such thing as lawful marriage other than the, the whole purpose of a certificate of divorce was to free them up to be married again. And you might say, how come adultery and abandonment, abandonment is in 1 Corinthians 7, we don't have time to go there. How come those are the exception clauses for a biblical divorce? Well, let's go back to what marriage is. A promise to what? Stay together forever. What's abandonment? Hard-hearted abandonment saying, I'm leaving you and I'm not coming back ever. I'm going to get remarried. There's a reason why that's one of them. And then what's the second thing that cuts a marriage covenant? The two shall become one flesh, the sexual union. So where there's unrepentant adultery that goes unchecked, here's the thing. Ought we ever come to the scripture and say, I need a biblical divorce. I want out of my marriage. So is there, pastor, is there, is, is it okay? In fact, can I be right in getting a divorce? No, you don't understand God's heart. If you want to understand God's heart and how last resort divorce ought to be, read the book of Hosea. See how patient God was with Israel, demonstrated in Hosea's marriage to a wife that is continually cheating on him. We live in a culture that even Christian culture divorces just like this. Let's do it quick. The way MacArthur says it, it's like getting a splinter and solving the problem by cutting your arm off with a chainsaw. That's what easy divorce is like. Rather than doing the hard work and maybe painful work of getting the splinter out, there's a sense that says, let's just destroy this thing and start again. But that lacks an understanding of what happened on that day when a marriage covenant was cut uh, before God. There's a hundred questions about divorce and remarriage that the Bible doesn't answer. What if my divorce was before I was saved? There's principles in which we can answer these questions. There's a, there's a great book I'd recommend called The Divorce Dilemma by John MacArthur. Uh, and he goes through some of these. The Bible gives us a few examples where we can get principles uh, from the scripture and asking some of these uh, questions. Uh, but it's a painful subject. Relationships in a fallen world after the fall are difficult. 
But God's mercy seen, even built into the law, the fact that immediate death penalty didn't come, even in a certificate of divorce for the innocent party, we see the mercy and kindness of God. He knows we're weak. He knows we're sinful. Maybe you have had an abortion and destroyed God's creation in that way. Maybe you have had a divorce and you're wondering, man, every time this word comes up, am I supposed to go under this rock of guilt? The question is, is have you acknowledged your sin before God, agreed with God what it is, and gone to his throne of grace for forgiveness and and mercy? Because Christ died for sinners. He died for adulterers. He died for the sexually immoral. Anyone that'll take an honest look at their life and say, I fall terribly short. I need Christ. Then you're welcomed. Forgiveness is there. As we uncover and don't hide, God covers our sin. It's thrown into a sea without end. Full status in his family. You're not half a brother and sister in Christ if you've participated in those sins. And by the way, you've all participated in the sin of murder. Because Jesus said, if you've had anger in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. And you've all participated in adultery because if you've had lust in your heart. And so Christ came for people like me and people like you. But God has told us what marriage is. He has told us how he feels about it, which is convicting, but he's given his son to us. Father, we thank you for your word that cuts like a knife. It exposes and it shows us how we fall short. But Father, as Christians, our hearts ought to soar as the Spirit not only convicts us of sin, but brings us to the Savior. Because the greater we see our own sin, the greater we see God's love for us in Christ, His patience for us in Christ. Father, I pray that you would do a work in the marriages at Sovereign Grace Church. That there wouldn't be any deception that we're all okay. Father, I pray that every husband here would go home and ask their wives, how are you praying for me? What, what would you like to see change in my life in a way that would better glorify Christ. Father, give our husbands the courage to ask that question. You've given them wives as their helpers to see into their 
hearts more clearly. Father, I pray that you would give wives the courage to ask their husbands how they're praying for them. Father, would you give us, husbands and wives, that tremble before your word, that take serious the great call of marriage. Your gospel, the image of the gospel, is at stake. Father, let us shine your light to this world that is so lost when it comes to these things. Give us mercy and grace as we do it. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.